0: So it was. It was that. Like at the end of the day, like what was the core of what the alpaca was after? It was he needs the grass, which is not at all about drugs at
1: all. <laughs> You're listening to Can't Sell This, a podcast about creativity, creatives, and their process, with your hosts Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambard. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Can't Sell This i uh, really excited again about this episode. <laughs> We've got a special guest, an old friend of mine. We've worked on several projects together. Uh, she's a writer for television. She's written for a web series. And I wanna welcome Elise Morgan to our show. Elise, please tell us a little bit more about yourself.
0: Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I, years and years ago, went to the CFC, which is how I got my start in the uh, entertainment industry. I worked on the show that ended up becoming Orphan Black. Um, so I worked on that while we were at the CFC. So it was kind of a, it wasn't a student project but it was part of the Canadian Film Center's uh, curriculum as you work on a show with a showrunner who's already been working on it. So he, uh, Graham has been working on the show for a couple of years. And I the very first thing I ever did was work on a show that ended oh, up becoming wow. black, which was fantastic. Uh, and then I graduated in 2009 into the recession, and there was no work, <laughs> no whatsoever. Yep. So uh, that actually led to me deciding to make my own web series, which at the time were new and shiny and, and not... Old like they are today. They were very fantastic and people had not heard of them before. I think the guild was like the only one that really existed. Uh, and so I ended up making a couple of those uh, and from there ended up working in animation. So working on kids TV, working on preschool, working on comedy, uh, working on a show called Mysticons, which was just a blast to work on because we got our own action figures and everything, which was great. Um, And, uh, you know, in the process of that, working on my own shows and my own uh, web series, still uh, working on uh, an IPF, almost funded web series called Apaco versus Lima, which was a lot of fun and took quite a bit of time.
1: So, yeah the cfc why don't you tell us a little bit more about that
0: the cfc is a school in toronto that essentially is for uh, all forms of different multimedia uh for composers for editors for writers of both film and television for actors uh and a bunch of other things and it basically there's a bunch of like six month programs they help people kind of grow in their career. So it's not necessarily for somebody who's starting out, it's for somebody who's been kind of kicking mm. around the industry for a bit, you apply. Uh, and again, like they have all of these programs, they're all fantastic. Um, they bring in amazing mentors and teachers who all have worked in the industry for years. Um, and this school has been around I want to say since the 70s, but they'll probably be like, no, that is totally incorrect. What are you talking about? Uh, but it is, you know, a fantastic school. Not everyone has heard about it, but it's, um, yeah, the Canadian Film Center or the CFC. Fantastic place to go.
1: Cool. So you you signed up. You've been working I, and you, you joined.
0: I joined. Yeah, I applied um, and I was... I had not, I'm exactly the opposite of most people who get to the CFC. I had not actually um, been in the industry. I had just been like, I'm going to write my own television scripts. This will be fun. And in the process of that, in that, you know, I met a wonderful gentleman uh, named Alain Mastai, who is just the most talented and lovely person. Um, And he was like, you should apply to the CFC. And I was like, what's that? And he actually very nicely wrote me my letter of reference for the school as well. Uh, and in getting into the program we had uh, you know eight other people and we basically worked for three months on again the show that became Orphan Black and had taken like Graham had been working on it for quite a while and we kept working on it with him so we workshopped it much like you would in an actual tv room or tv writer's room as they call them Uh, and you know, you come in every day, you work on the different episodes, um, people get given episodes to work on, and you would write them in that kind of three-month period, much like you would if you were on a show professionally. Right. So it gives people that experience, uh, which is very unique for programs, even uh, in Canada. It's not common to get that experience of, like working with a, you know, professional TV writer on a show like that. And every year they have new uh, writers in residents that kind of run shows like that. So it's it's really a fantastic program that TV program that they have there.
1: So before CFC, what was your uh, your educational background like? Did you did you graduate from like a bachelor's program or?
0: I yes, I graduated from. I had a lit degree, uh, and I had intended to possibly go into teaching. I had very little life plan. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll be a teacher. That'll be easy. Uh, and TV <laughs> writing somehow became the thing that I was like, oh, I'll just try that. That'll be a fun thing to try, uh, which is exactly how all TV writers should get born.
1: <laughs> because, well, I, I asked because I was trying to, to picture, like, you, you know, the way that you described the CFC and, and, and coming in and working on an actual project. And how that is something that uh, you, you don't find in most post-secondary education. You know, if you if you think about uh, film studies or or anything like that, um, you know, media production, uh, it's it, you might have a project that you work on, but it's mostly theory and and some sort of hands-on to to a lesser extent. Uh, maybe you see more of that at the uh, college level, but, um, but this sounds like, you know, working with people who have worked in the industry and, you know, what was that like, how, how was it like going into it, uh, working with people who have already worked uh, writing for television,
0: going into the CFC having taken one. I think I'd taken one college level screenwriting course and I'd read uh, Alex Epstein's book on on TV writing, crafty TV writing, which was fantastic. Uh, It is a great book and it's a specific, it's a book that actually is specifically about writing in the Canadian industry, which is also rare to find. Uh, But going into the CFC with that as a background was kind of like jumping into the deep end of the pool and not really knowing what you're doing, which is fine because, you know, they are there to kind of help people through that process and everything else. But it is... um, I'm not sure what would actually prepare you for that other than you know, reading a lot, reading a lot of screenplays, uh, writing a lot of your own pro, like a lot of your own uh, TV shows, episodes, pilots, that kind of thing. That kind of prep that you would have to go into the CFC uh, is what any TV writer would do anyways. So you can do that by yourself. You don't necessarily need a course to do that, but I can't, I don't know of a program in Canada that's like the CFC's TV writing program. So I'm not sure.
1: So I guess while you were working there, you said you were working on the show that became Orphan Black, and I'm guessing that means that you know the show was workshopped, and you said that Graham, the the creator, uh, took that show eventually and, and turned it into what became Orphan Black. But um, I'm curious, did, did you watch the show once it was aired?
0: I did. I did watch uh, Orphan. It's it's a great show. Yeah. Um, it is fantastic, and. Like some of the stuff that we worked on absolutely was in there, but Graham had been working on Orphan for I think five years before mm-hmm. we worked on it at the CFC. And then he took it, and it took another five years to get it off the air or to get it on the air.
1: On the air, right. So, well, uh, off, the air.
0: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> off yeah. the
1: air. It took us five years to finally get that show off the air, yeah. and we did it. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> but, but I guess um, having worked a lot with other people's film and television properties, uh, there was a point where I read a script to a film that was yet to be released. And I remember that when I finally saw the film itself, uh, I could see how it came from that script, but that there were definitely some differences, right? Uh, And I was always really curious about like, where, where was it? How, what was the process? So I was just wondering if you know, if you were in, in uh, at the CFC working on, you know, uh, writer's room type brainstorming and, and story crafting. And then when you saw, because you, you heard the idea that that initially was Graham's idea and then you saw what, what came out of it. And did you, can you see that thread, that creative thread of how ideas sort of made it through?
0: Yeah. No for sure we definitely you definitely see the changes from a project like a couple years on and a lot of the project changes can be you know production related like oh they didn't have enough money to do that or they couldn't actually produce something like that for whatever reason Uh, but I think beyond anything else Orphan Black as a show when Graham was working on it with us in the room at the CFC to the show that he brought out five years later was very similar to what Graham had intended to kind of build from there. Like, he really kept that same vision all the way through. Uh, It's a really fantastic show. It has a wonderful through line. And you definitely do see as things change uh, on anything. Like, I've worked on projects that go over a couple years, even some of the web series I worked on, and things do shift. And it's just like, can we produce it this way? No. How (laughs) can we produce
1: it? (laughs) how can we make this actually happen? Right. How, how collaborative is working in, in a television writer's room? You know, I'm just assuming you have many, you have many writers, but then often when you see credits on, on an ep on a series episode, it's, it's one or two writers, but you know that that writer's room is much larger. Is there a lot of sort of like cross pollination of ideas? Is there a lot of like planning of a season where the writers will sit down and decide who gets to reveal what in their episodes or how like just, Spell it out for us.
0: The magic of the TV writers room is, yes, it's, it's often very collaborative. Uh, generally, most shows I've been on have done a very similar thing, which is they'll kind of arc out the entire season together. So you'll have however many writers you have on a show, if that's five, if that's 10, uh, if that's 20, and you're lucky enough to have 20 writers on a, on a show, great. Everyone will work together and you you know everyone will come in and say, like, what, what are we pitching today? Like, what are we trying to work on today? Are we trying to get, you know, from this character from point A to B, or do we have a really cool idea for uh, a very interesting character arc that can get put on the board? And so you can work on it that way from the season perspective. And then from there, you would do uh, an episode break. So you would take that episode and everyone in the room would help work on that episode break. They would say, okay, we need to figure out what happens in act one or the teaser right before the um, the title card comes up, and everybody kind of works on it. You work on it for a couple days, and you would go over everything a bunch. So it is a super collaborative function. But there is one writer who writes it. So then once everyone's kind of broken that episode, they'll be said, you know, they'll be told here, this is what we're we're doing in this episode. You go write that. So there's still stuff to be discovered as you're writing that script. But as a group, everyone kind of comes together to say like, what's the best version of this story? And that's how the TV writer's room kind of works, which is a really wonderful, fantastic experience.
1: Yeah. Well, how do you, how would you then avoid, you know, the too many cooks scenario where you have so many different, like, is there a a singular, like would Graham uh, be that singular vision holder who would then decide or remind everyone what the, what the vision is or what the creative direction is for the show?
0: So generally if uh, in a, A one hour or half hour like a primetime live action show you would have a showrunner like graham and they would be the kind of arbiter of that the decision of what's going to happen Uh, and if they're out for whatever reason they're generally like you know the the next person in line (laughs) the like the big iep would then kind of be the person making that call uh on an animated series that's a story editor same idea they're the person who is in charge of making those calls they are the person who say yes this is a good idea no this isn't a good idea uh, and the people in the room are, you know, like part of your job is to say, like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then when the call is, no, we're doing this. That's the call.
1: So, let's talk about Pretty and Geek.
0: <laughs> let's talk about Pretty
1: and Geek. So this is this is uh, this was your creation, your web series, like you said back when. Uh, There was not a lot going on in the web series world. Uh, And I I find it interesting that the one that you mentioned, the guild, was another sort of Dungeons and Dragons focused, although in their part, it was more of a, I guess, a a video game. Yeah, Yeah. they were doing
0: like a World of Warcraft.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, Yeah, when we were doing Pretty and Geek, which back in the day, there wasn't a huge amount of Dungeons and Dragons kicking around. It wasn't really Mm -hmm. a big focus. We were really all learning together on how to work that. And like, I'd based it on my own experience playing D and D in college. And so that had been kind of our experience building that out. And it was like, how do we make a comedy of this long running thing within the framework of a, uh, a series that again, how do you produce it within the framework of like, we have this small area, this is what we can produce. We can kind of showcase these things and, Uh, And it took us quite a while, I will say that, in building that series. It was, uh, I had come up with it probably around 2009, and it wasn't until 2011 that we released. And we'd worked on it for two-ish years pretty heavily with editing and with post-production and with shooting and everything else. So it's a long time doing those kind of things on the independent side. And so a
1: lot of learning was, was had, I will say that. So a lot of learning in, in the actual production of it, you mean?
0: Yes. In the fact that I was a writer who had never produced anything. I had I had actually, that's it. I had worked on the, the one thing at the CFC where we had our TV trailers uh, produced, which was very exciting. Other than that, I hadn't actually been on set. <laughs> so it was like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to build the set. We're going to build everything that we need to do to make this production happen and shoot it over, I think about six weeks is what we did it in.
1: The whole series was shot over six weeks six weekends specifically. weekends wow Very quickly wow wow that's amazing I, I it did that experience then somehow or did, did um did pretty geek you know help you as you move forward in in trying to get work as a writer like showing that you've done this work you've created something on your own you know budget and production and everything
0: on the side of having produced and made a web series, it did help a lot on, you know, applying for other kind of uh, things like the IPF, uh, which is a web series production fund in Canada, as well as looking at different programs on that side, from the perspective of, you know, going in and meeting with producers, it did help on that side of saying, hey, look, we we did this thing. It's a reason to go in and say hello. Like, hey, we just produced this thing. I'd love to go talk to you about other projects that I wanna work on. So that's the one thing much like a web series, much like a short film kind of exists as a calling card. Hey, I did this thing. And because it was something that was so early in my career, it was a huge learning opportunity in just building a new project, building everything from there. And, you know, from that time, I've definitely learned a lot. I've learned a huge amount on like how to, how to write, how to build character, how to build arcs. Um, you know, looking back, it's definitely like, yeah, that's definitely something I did at the start of my career. Uh, but it was such a huge learning opportunity and it was such a huge uh, option, opportunity for all of us to kind of like work together and, and figure that out. It was fantastic on that side.
1: Yeah, what you were saying about, about short films, and, and it definitely seems like nowadays, especially with with YouTube and other other like, you know streaming video uh, platforms, uh, there's a lot of creators who have that opportunity to to create something and then have that picked up. There was that that period maybe about four years ago where there was a bunch of, of short films that were being picked up by major Hollywood directors and being optioned for feature films. Um, so yeah, I can, I can see coming from a, a, a period where, you know, that YouTube series model was just coming into its own and then being able to, to leverage that as you, as you said, as your calling card. Um, but one tangent I want to take us on just very quickly is the DD tangent, because that's something that we bonded over when we first met was our, our, uh, our mutual experiences with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and as we all know, the world has been a very different place these last 18 months of COVID. Uh, and I gotta ask, have you been doing any
0: D? It has been so long since I've played a D&D game, which is terrible. I know. Um, I honestly, I think the last DD game I played was not DD, it was Shadowrun. but uh, but it was it was actually it was ironically one of the cast members from Pretty and Geek that I did it with. And it's but it's been more than five years. But oh, wow. I think I do love that d has like this mainstream kind of moment right now. Because yep, yep. at the time, like even explaining to people, people were like, what? What? Dungeons & Dragons? And now it's like, "Ah, oh, yes, that thing that's very cool. And we know what this is. So it's an interesting thing having done a project so much earlier than the zeitgeist to see how many like these very cool projects perhaps coming out right now in that world. But it is, yeah, I miss playing. I do miss playing.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's to me, it's always felt a little bit like that writer's room, uh, especially, you know, depending on the approach you take to playing, but the idea that, you know, you're sitting with a group of people around a table and you're essentially trying to to build a story together, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, the players see themselves as just that one singular protagonist, or if they're okay with just making it so that it's a better story. To be
0: um, fair, I don't think any player actually wants to make the story happen. They're just kind of destroying the story. Yeah. That the DM's trying to tell.
1: <laughs> they want to tear, tear it apart.
0: Yeah. Oh, you want me to go here? Well, look, it's a tavern. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> we go there instead.
1: Yeah. It's it's like a dog and a squirrel.
0: It's fantastic.
1: And speaking of animals, uh, I mean, we can come back to to pretty and geek, but but you mentioned before alpaca versus llama, and that you wanted to talk about it. So I don't want to deprive you of that opportunity. So let's let's talk about it. What is alpaca versus llama?
0: So, and this is only just to really get to the, like, crux of the show title, which is Can't Sell This. And Alpaca vs. Llama was a show that we tried so hard to sell in so many different ways. Now, Alpaca vs. Llama was um, actually my production company name. And I met with a producer named Simon Watts. And he, I I pitched him a bunch of stuff and he was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. None of that. This logo of yours... (laughs) Of this alpaca and llama boxing, let's make that. And that was like a very fateful meeting because I met with Simon and he was like, "Yeah, no, no, this will be great. This will be great. This will be great." And we ended up really kind of going down this two and a half year long journey of pitching alpaca versus llama as ten to twelve different things, starting you know at a very much so dialogue filled show and ending at a no dialogue show very much so like an old school like uh coyote roadrunner kind of thing and which was not entirely what we intended to create of course it was just like hey like maybe we can get this off the ground maybe we can take this very like old school like 60s style um design that he had had worked up with a really lovely uh designer and uh we worked with another writer on on building all of this out. And we ended up actually pitching it to the IPF. And the IPF, sorry, the IPF actually did really like it, Um, but the IPF gets tons of uh, amazing shows every year. When they do their open call, so we ended up making our, the second stage, but we didn't end up getting uh, funding, unfortunately. But it was it was just one of those like long term projects where we tried every which way from Sunday. We pitched it around the world. We pitched it in the states. We pitched it in the UK. We pitched it in Europe, uh, and it was you know kind of almost the right thing each time. And it just didn't end up going, even though, you know, there's a ton mm-hmm. of those shows that sell everywhere. And it's just a very interesting kind of experience of like going from like, okay, okay we're gonna try this now, we're gonna try this now. um that it was uh, it was a delight to work on, very different working on something with no dialogue as somebody who's a writer first. Um, so it was a very interesting kind of progression of, of concept, I would say.
1: Interesting. How So how did you adapt, you know, from, I'm assuming that normally you' you're very comfortable with writing dialogue and and doing character development through dialogue. how did, How did you adapt to then writing essentially what was going to be visual storytelling?
0: One of the things we did kind of building uh, out from a show that had a lot of explanation involved was going, okay, how do we get this gag across? How do we take you know this this story of what is essentially like uh, a coyote roadrunner story? But between an inventor alpaca and a Playboy llama, <laughs> and we added a briefcase of grass that was magical, and it would just continue and forever. And that was the thing that was the um, the alpaca was after was the grass. So it was it was that like at the end of the day was like what was the core of what the alpaca was after? It was he needs the grass, which was not at all about drugs at all. <laughs>
1: And so then, um, so, 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 sorry, I'm still getting over that visual. But so then, um, I'm assuming that then you worked, uh, you know, describing the visuals, the the visual gags, and then and then you said that uh, Simon hired a, an artist. Was, was there like storyboards involved? Like, how did you pitch this? What did you create to? Because tr- you said you got close every time.
0: We we actually had we had storyboards. We had a Leica. We had character designs. Uh, and we had like a wonderful mock-up of like all the characters together that we had like on a one sheet that was very glossy and fantastic that we would do as a leave behind. Uh, and uh, we, had, we also had, I think, something like four full scripts for episodes. And so we had scripts that were with dialogue and then we had scripts that were without. And so the without dialogue scripts all had sound effects in them. So we made sure that of course, like anything that we wanted to get across, like how could we get that across with what essentially was battle. Uh, which was something that we had done with actually a preschool show that I'd worked on called uh, Ollie the Boy Who Became What He Ate. And so, which is a fantastic CBC show. It was just lovely. Uh, and one of the things that we had used on that was um, characters that would just kind of make these fun little sounds to get across what they wanted. And so it was, how do you take that kind of aspect and move it on to like a, you know, meep, meep kind of sound effects? Right. And you know, if you look at Coyote and Roadrunner, There's a lot expressed in -hmm. those old cartoons and they don't say anything.
1: No, and they very rarely have to resort to the the hand signs that the coyote uses. I think usually those are more as a, a, a gag in and of themselves rather than being something that is required for information. Exactly. So
0: we watched a lot of cartoons. Is what we did. Yes. That, was, that was what we did for research. We were like, we got to watch cartoons.
1: So, so where, so where did, where did you do these pitches? Did you go to the the festivals and and you know meet with people and that sort of thing?
0: Uh, on the side of on what Simon did, Simon went everywhere. I mm-hmm. will say that. Um, on my side as a producer as well on the project, I went to the Banff Media Festival and I was pitching it there. I was pitching it in L.A. Uh, going down directly to see the broadcasters there, you know, talking to Netflix, talking to uh, Cartoon Network, seeing if anyone's interested on that side. Uh, and, you know, going around Toronto looking for production partners on that side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you do that, you kind of do see like people are generally very interested, but they're often saying, oh well, but get, you know, get somebody in Canada. Get someone in Canada first. And it becomes this weird chicken and egg because everyone in Canada is saying, well get somebody
1: Else. In the States first, yeah, get yeah. Somebody
0: yeah. In the States, get somebody in Europe. And and that's always the kind of the process it is, because it used to be that you would have shows that would go with just one broadcaster. And now on the kids' side, especially, it's often three or more. So it's like, okay, I'm going to get this financing and this financing and this financing together to get the Canadian broadcaster in last,
1: hmm.
0: which is well, a weird process.
1: <laughs> why do you think that that change has happened? Do you think that there's just less... Um less ability to take risks on shows or do you think it's just more because there's a a larger global market that needs to be considered?
0: There is a very large global market when it comes to making anything, everything kind of comes down to the ability to get, you know, certain tax credits to, you know, making sure that you're going to have a market that will go and, and sell it. The other thing is, is that like you can go to a Netflix, but Netflix will often want other partners as well, unless they're going to produce it themselves which is a very different model. So it really depends on how you're kind of building out your production style on that structure. Right,
1: right. Interesting. Um, so I, I can I can only assume, and it sounds like from what you're telling me, that w- alpaca versus llama, which c- came from your company logo, which is so crazy, uh, but I love that. Uh, but but I can see that that was like a, a sort of a, a passion project, a project that that really was something that you were behind from the beginning, created. Um, that must be very different from you know the the animation writing work that you've done as a as a, a freelancer. I'm assuming.
0: Uh, generally yeah you'd be a freelancer who works on a show there's there's different ways that you can work on a show as a freelancer you can either just do an episode which uh, is fairly common if you have like your 52 episodes uh, season that some animated series have or you can be a person who is like a staff writer on the show where you're working on the show and you have you know x number of episodes that you'll write so you'll kind of work on the show on a weekly rate Mm -hmm. uh, as well as getting your script rate.
1: Yeah, and I'm just trying to to, to see if there's a difference um, because we talked about it being you know being in the writers room is just very collaborative and, and I'm assuming very creative and you get to work with the same people if you are as a, working as a staff writer, um, but then but the, what the ownership is different though between that and something where you have sat down and come up with a pitch and come up with a show. So so how does the experience? How's the experience different? Like how how do you approach? Um writing something that's part of someone else's creation.
0: When you go on to somebody else's show, you kind of you have to always find the thing that you love about it. I don't think there's anyone who goes on a show and is just like, eh, whatever. I'm just working on this for the paycheck. Like you're going in, you're still going to be very passionate about it. Um, but you're also not generally working on it for as long. So if you've come on to a show when it's already sold and everything else you're going to kind of go on and, you know, even in animation, because animation, as you know, has a very long tail. You've been working on it for a while. You can kind of work on it for a bit, but it's not going to have the same kind of length of time. Whereas if you come up with it from like, you know, that very basic idea of like saying, oh, I'm going to come up with uh, some characters and then I'm going to write a script, whatever. I can do that in a week. Famous last words. Uh, (laughs) You're going to, and you're going to pitch it around and everything else. It's not that there's less, you know, effort focused on it or that you have less, like, skin in the game. It's just that, like, you definitely are spending less time on that aspect of it. And so when you're kind of coming in, you're going, like, okay, how do I, you know, like, bring in some ideas that would really bring these characters to life? And you really have to ask the the story editor, like, mm. where do you come from with this? Like, what do you see this character as? How do you see this kind of playing out? How can we grow this character from this kind of initial point? Because it's, it's somebody else's kind of... Um, grouping of characters but everyone kind of comes together to leave something in there to help Mm -hmm. grow those characters in their own way so nobody like leaves no one in a show isn't involved isn't helping kind of move things forward
1: so i think you might be able to provide some insight from both sides of this next question and that is when you're working with uh, another creator like you come on onto a show that that someone else has created or you're you're hiring additional writers to work on something that you've put together how important is it that you you have the same sort of sensibilities that you know the same humor or similar humor at least and you know the same uh, touch points in in pop culture is that is that something that that really is important I actually,
0: I would say you don't need to have the same touch points, having this, if everyone has the same touch points, everyone is the same person, that's not helpful. When you're putting a room together, you want to bring in complementary people that have different ideas on how to kind of work on stuff. So you want different people with different skills. You don't want 10 of you in a room because 10 of you isn't going to grow the show or grow those characters or bring anything out in a different way. You want to be looking at having, you know, this person's really good at maybe dialogue and character arcs and maybe this person's really good at plot. At the end of the day, they're all going to be writing episodes. So they all still need to be able to write scripts, but being able to work together, being able to kind of build out that room environment um, and hopefully everyone will come together. That's kind of what you're looking for in doing that. But you want everyone to have a different kind of viewpoint. You don't want to be like, here's 10 of me. And mm-hmm. we'll all come up with the same ideas. Cause that's yeah. not ideal.
1: Um, you know, there's that, that um, idea of the person who just wants to hire people that will um, reinforce their point of view, right? Because that makes them feel good. You know, if I hire people that always tell me or think the same as me, then I'm, I'm always right. Uh, but when you when you work with people who have different viewpoints, uh, like you said that, then you know you have different skills. But does that also then cause conflict? And and how uh, how is it that you manage that? How how do you manage working with people that might not see eye to eye with you when you are the creator of the show?
0: I will admit that. I have not spent a lot of time as a showrunner or as a story editor. That is a very different skill. So like somebody who's done that, like I've worked with story editors who are fantastic at that. And it's always a wonder to see that because it is a, managing creatives is its own job. Mm -hmm. It's its own type of skill. uh, And for whatever reason, the way Hollywood works is they're like, oh, you've created a show. You can also be a great manager. And that isn't necessarily a hand-in-hand kind of experience. So it can be, I'm sure very difficult for a lot of people coming in being like, okay, now I have to like, you know, mediate this and I have to manage like this person. And I have to hope that these people that I interviewed for an hour are going to come together and build a fantastic show. Cause that's what we need them to do. So I can't really talk a lot to that aspect, but I would say that I respect the heck out of a lot of people who do that. It is a very difficult job. Um, but everyone is coming together in a room with the same goal when you are on a show everyone's coming together to say we want to make the best show possible no one's coming in being like I want to wreck this because I want this character to suck like zero people come in with that as a goal everyone's coming in together to be like hey let's let's make a fantastic show let's kind of work together let's let's figure out the best way to do that and sure there are people who are like I you know I don't agree with that thing but as you discuss as you bring your viewpoints to it that's how you kind of come up with that you know what the late Dennis McGrath would had on pins, which was best idea wins, right? Right. right. And that's the thing, it is the best idea that wins at the end of the day.
1: So for content creators or for writers who are interested in getting started or maybe even uh, content uh, creators who are building out their own show pitches, are there any, um, any resources here in Toronto that you could think of that would be helpful for them?
0: Uh, there, So there are a couple of different things in Toronto. There's uh, Women in Film Toronto mm-hmm. has a variety of uh, workshops that they run. They're fantastic. Uh, Dames Who Make Games also have, you know, for people who are wanting into games or into more interactive projects, they make they do a lot of workshops. They're really cool. Um, Inc. Canada has a writing forum and they have uh, monthly, not during pandemic meetups, where uh, scribes and those who are, friends of writers or people who are interested in writing can kind of meet up with them at, uh, at pubs. So that, that is a fantastic kind of resource for people who are like trying to get in or want to ask people questions. Um, and, or just want to have a pint with some people, uh, or something non-alcoholic, no one judges. Um, and I mean, in Canada was a really great fun kind of thing there's also tiff which is a great resource for people who uh, want to get into film or just want to watch cool films uh which is out in september and kind to think of what else there's there's lots of really good um filmmaker groups in toronto which helps a lot i would say for writers who are looking to kind of up their craft always reading scripts so they can look online uh, and find resources that offer free scripts um I can't think of any canadian specific ones unfortunately mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. reading scripts is a great way to kind of to to really work on that just read as many scripts as you want and can and that will help out uh, re- read the script and then watch the pilot if you're into tv
1: that's a good point yeah same
0: that's thing a for point. film read the film yeah. and then watch the film
1: and see the differences see how the how the script is translated into visuals Great. Is, is there anything else that you'd want to talk about that you'd want to showcase that you're working on or that you have worked on in the past or, or any other advice that you might give to aspiring young writers?
0: I think advice to give to writers is just keep writing stuff that you want to write. At the end of the day, that's the only thing you can do. Uh, and it's the only thing you have any control over, is the thing to say, because it's a weird industry and you never know what project is the thing that's going to get made, especially in this new wonderful world of adaptations and mm-hmm. really cool like sci-fi projects that, you know, even five years ago I was like, no, there's no way anything like that would get made. And now it's just that's just what gets picked up every day, which is very cool.
1: So so do you think this adaptation model now that you can you can say, well, I couldn't get this made as as a TV production, I could actually try to write it as a book and then see if that gets picked up and, and adapted.
0: You can write it as a book. You can write it as a comic. You can write it as a web series. You can mm-hmm. do so a podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Also,
0: like This podcast could get adapted. It'd be great.
1: Can't sell this, the movie.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that's true. I've, I've seen that a lot. And and my, uh, my philosophy has always been, you know, make it with the lowest amount of gatekeepers you know, trying to get her, trying to to right out of the gate, say, I'm going to get my show on Netflix that, you know, there's a, there's a giant wall between you and Netflix and you have to, you have to try to scale that somehow. But if you take your idea and you immediately say, I'm just going to put this out, uh, I'm going to film it with my own camera equipment at home. You know, the prosumer equipment is getting cheaper and cheaper uh, and better in quality. So yeah, it seems to me that, that, that is really, really smart uh, advice.
0: And also if you just write, a project you can always pitch it at the end of the day once you have the script that is a conversation you can have with a producer with another writer with you know someone on that side because until you've written the thing it's just an idea and lots of people have ideas but when you write the project and you kind of get into it and you get some feedback on it that's where you really start to go okay is this working is this not working how do i figure this out and those are the conversations that you have to get something made mm-hmm, mm-hmm. once you've gone and said yeah this is this is you know, getting someone else really excited about it—that's the process by which you get a show.
1: And, and and what would you think? Do you think it's a good idea to have have multiple pitches ready to go, or or just to focus on the one?
0: I think for somebody starting out, the one is probably the biggest thing. Is just get the first one done, and then you can kind of start working on new ones. Once you have the first project, you can start taking meetings. But you mm-hmm. you always should you know be working on something mm-hmm. slowly. As you go through, uh, you know, kind of working on the idea that you're really excited about, and go from there. And like I said, there's really nothing that's off the table anymore, which is exciting.
1: Yeah, I, I always think back to um, to the the story about Matt Groening and trying to get uh, shows on the Tracy Allman show, and he pitched three things, and and the the producers just kind of "Do you have anything else?" And then he finally just had nothing left, so he just described his family. And that is what became The Simpsons.
0: Which is ironically so often what the wave is. Yep. It's like, okay. oh yeah, I spent 10 years working on this show. Do you have anything else? Uh, <laughs> bees. Beads. Beads. Heard of bees. Yep, great, good. That's it, let's go.
1: But uh, but I don't think you can beat. This is my company logo. And now the <laughs> show pitch.
0: That, that was a pretty good one. It was just like, yeah, that's nice. That's nice that you have all these ideas that you spent all this time on. But this this logo of yours, I'm into that. Let's go.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's turn it into something. But I mean, it also goes to show you that uh, that you know, you, with the right amount of creativity and work, I think you can pretty much turn any idea into something substantial. Absolutely. Well, listen, Elise, this has been fantastic. I, we've had a great time chatting. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you
0: so much for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome.
1: This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.